You were made on purpose for a purpose. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. You're not the product of time and chance. Your parents may have been surprised by you, okay? But God was not surprised by you. And we are entering a new series and season in the book of Ephesians, and that's exactly what it's about. It's about you realizing you're made on purpose for a purpose and finding that purpose among God's people. Uh, So you can type to turn to Ephesians. As you do, let me just take one moment. I wanna just celebrate last week. We could say weekend, really weak. Easter, uh, our largest attendance ever, we had 30, over 3,200 people with us. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, guys, that, yeah, very, very exciting. Guys, that, that's a tipping point for us because uh, that, just think about this for a minute. That means that there was over 1% of the population of Winston-Salem came to one of our services. Just incredible. So here's what I wanted to say. Thank you for investing. (laughs) Yeah, and it rained in the parking crew and everybody, yes. Thank you for investing. Thank you for inviting. It was an incredible week. And if you came back, you were here last week and you've been coming around, I don't know, for maybe just last week or maybe for the last month or so. Let me just tell you about our weekender really quickly, April 21st and 22nd. Uh, This is how you move from the crowd to the connected and the committed from I'm interested in this church to I wanna be invested in this church to you talk about our church like it's that church to you start talking about the church like it's my church. Let me invite you and some of you go, I don't wanna be the first to sign up. You're not, there's already over 50 people coming, okay? So it's gonna be a great time. And then also let me just encourage you if you've been through the weekender, uh, to get in a group. Now, if you are not in a community group in our church, let me say this in the most loving way possible, uh, you're not gonna get everything you could out of this series. And if your only experience of Two Cities Church is on the weekend, we love the weekends, we believe in the weekends, uh, but that's about half the experience of our church. The main place and point of connection and care is in community groups, and that's where we work it all out. So let me just take a moment. I just wanna thank God for all that happened at Easter and pray for us as we start this new series. Let's do that. Lord, we just thank you so much for Easter, for baptisms, for lives, lives changed. I thank you for the people who invited and invested, who served in kids and brought friends and people who parked in the rain and just, uh, Lord, now we just pray for fruit. Uh, the, the Christian ministry is the planting of seeds and the praying for fruit. And we ask that you would continue to water and cultivate the seeds that we've planted in people who are far from God and close to us. And that we would celebrate many more baptisms in the future stories that came out of this past Easter weekend. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can type two, turn to Ephesians. If you've got one of those real Bibles, you can find it, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or as I was taught as a brand new believer, God eats potato chips. Okay, there you go. Or General Electric Power Company, however you get there, find your way to Ephesians. We're just gonna be in two verses, guys. We're going, we went from talking about an entire chapter in uh, Joshua every week to talking this week just about two verses. Let me just introduce kind of the whole concept really quickly to you. Because uh, maybe it's not immediately obvious why we do series. Let me just say this. Uh, I don't think in terms of sermons, though I love them. And I don't think in terms of Sundays, though I love them. We think in terms of series. And here's my question for you. How could your life be different at the end of the series? We're gonna, I'll tell you this, we're gonna spend 16 weeks in, uh, in what in your Bible is two pages. And at least in my Bible, it's two pages front and back. It's only 155 verses. Uh, but pound for pound and page for page, most people say this is the most theologically rich and dense book in your Bible. Uh, yes, Romans has more theology, but Romans is 16 long chapters. This is six very short chapters. So here's my question for you. And I know you don't know all that the book's about yet. You'll discover that. Uh, here's my question for you. How will your life be different at the end of this series? Here's what it means to be a part of a church. Connect your life. Connect your life and your family's life and say, we're gonna go through Ephesians together and we're gonna work on this. And this series is called The Church in the Home and we're gonna better understand the church and we're gonna better understand the home. And how could your life be different? End of July, this series is over. How is your marriage deeper? 
How is your family stronger? How is your identity in Christ more secure? How is your walk with Christ more intimate? How is your life more missional? How is our church more united? Isn't it exciting? Well, so here's what we're doing, guys. And, and we're just gonna walk through verse by verse. And again, I don't want you, maybe you take it for granted. Well, why do we walk through verses, uh, books of the Bible, verse by verse, uh, line by line? It's so that we root the authority of this church, uh, not in a person or a pastor, but in the text itself. And it makes sure that we deal with all the hard issues. And we're gonna deal with some really interesting things over the next six 16 weeks and over these six chapters. Um, let me just tell you what we're gonna be doing. We're gonna be tracing many themes, many topics. Uh, two of the ones we're gonna really focus on, there's lots of topics, right? There's prayer and there's spiritual warfare and today's identity. We're gonna really double click on the home and the church because those are the two first institutions God creates and they are under attack today, right? Did you see the new Wall Street Journal survey that just came out or whatever you call it, study two weeks ago? Uh, basically on the other side of COVID, community involvement's down, having kids is down, getting married is down, religious faith is down. The only two things that are up are work and money. That seems to be the only two things Americans really care about on the other side of COVID. We're gonna be spending these 16 weeks looking at many themes, but especially the church and the home. Why? Because the church is God's plan A, it's not an afterthought. And it's, it's how God accomplishes his purposes in the world. And the family is the place of human flourishing. So let, let's go to verse one and verse two. I wanna show you this. We're gonna spend all our time in these two verses. And so I will read them in their entirety. Here we go. Paul, we'll talk about him for a while. An apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, we'll talk about what God's will is. That's an important concept. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's verse one. Then verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, those of you who take notes, okay? And I wanna thank both of you, okay? For those of you who take notes. Um, now, I know some of you do take notes. Let me tell you what the big idea is. The big idea for this sermon is that your identity is to be received, not achieved. Your whole life, everywhere you've ever gone, every job you've taken, every class you went to, every school you attended, they always told you that you need to achieve your identity. You need to do a bunch of things and then you'll become a certain person. That's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches about our identity in Christ. We don't work for an identity, we work from an identity. This is such a big deal to understand the book of Ephesians. So if you take Ephesians, okay, the book we're in, it's six chapters. Here's what's really interesting. And this is how Paul always does this. Paul always tells us who before do. He always tells us our identity before any of our activities. And this is so key. Look, I'm not making this up. So in Ephesians, we'll, we'll, we won't be there for a couple months, but in Ephesians chapter four is the first command that we get in Ephesians. Think about that. Chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, no commands. When you go to the book of Romans, Paul doesn't give the first command in Romans till chapter six. Five chapters of just telling us who before do. Here's what theologians call this, indicatives before imperatives. God tells you who you are before he tells you what to do. It's like my friend, my friend uh, growing up in high school, uh, he would, you know, he had, had this great Christian family and he tells the story that he was in high school, he's getting older and he's struggling with all the things high schoolers struggle with and you know, and he's going out to parties and different things. And, and his parents gave him a long rope, but they always said, he said, my dad said the same thing to me every time I left the house. He said, son, you're a Smith, act like one. That's the book of Ephesians. To the Christian, you're a Christian, act like one. The New Testament ethic is simply this, become who God already says you are. Become practically and progressively what you are positionally. So we gotta talk about 
identity because we work from an identity, not for an identity. Now, we know identity is a big idea in our culture today, right? We, I mean, we're reminded, whether you know it or not, you're reminded every day about identity theft, right? This is why you have to either use your face or type in a password, right? And then now everybody, have you ever had this two-step verification process, right? Where you, you log in and then it says, we're gonna send you a text, right? And then you have to click that button, I'm not a robot. Do you know what I'm talking about? And then they bring up those little like windows squares and you're like, ah, I, is that a sidewalk or not? <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. Okay. Here's what I want you to know. Your identity is being stolen today, but not the way that we think it is where somebody else has got your passcodes. Our identity is stolen today through lies. We are being lied to about who we are. And, and here's the, the main problem in your life, the main problem in your kids' lives, are you don't know who you are. And if you don't know who you are, not knowing who you are and having anxiety are the exact same thing. And we tell people today, you can be anything. Guess what? That's too many things to be. And so we're constantly looking to everyone else for identity. With our time left, here's what Paul's gonna do. He's going to tell us who he is so we'll understand his identity and how that can be a part of our identity. He's going to tell us who we are. And therefore, out of that, he's going to tell us what our lives should be about, namely grace and peace. So let's go back to verse one. I wanna, I wanna take us through all of this together. Let's look at the Apostle Paul in verse one. He says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Okay, that's all he says about himself. So we gotta talk about Paul. Now, Paul is so important. It's hard for me not to preach an entire sermon just on who Paul is. I love the apostle Paul. Part of what happens if you read your New Testament time and time again, you realize he wrote 13 letters. They're super personal. So uh, you take the book of Acts and you take Paul's letters and we can get a great picture of Paul's life. Let me just tell you about him because you know this. It's super important to know the author. It, it validates and authenticates the rest of the message. Now, what's interesting is nowadays, right, when we write an email or none of us really write letters anymore, right? If you get a letter, you're like, who was kidnapped, right? That's how we feel if somebody writes us a letter, huh? Uh, but we write emails and what's interesting about how we write emails is we put the person's name we're sending it to at the top and we finally at the very end put our name. Back then they put their name at the top, which seems to make more sense to me. So they say Paul, now who's Paul? Well, Paul was a very Jewish man, but he was a Roman citizen, okay? Very interesting, he grew up wealthy. Uh, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. That's a very wealthy tribe. And what's interesting is his name wasn't always Paul. Uh, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Um, his name used to be Saul, okay? Now, why would someone be named Saul? Most people think his name was Saul because he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Guess who else was of the tribe of Benjamin? King Saul, the first king of Israel. He had good Jewish parents. They named him after the first king of Israel. So Paul grows up as a very Jewish man. That's gonna be very important in understanding his story. Um, now, you may have heard this before. Have you ever heard like Paul's on the road to Damascus and when Paul's converted, you know, Jesus changes his life. This is all true and this happens in Acts chapter nine. And I was always told, and I think I've said this, so sorry, I was wrong. I, I, I have always said, oh yeah, God changed his name from Saul to Paul. That's actually not true. If you go and you read it, there's no name change. In fact, he's called Saul a little bit more in chapter 10 and 11 and 12. The first time Saul changes his name to Paul it's when he sent out in Acts 13 from that great mission-sending church, the first mission-sending church in the Bible, the church at Antioch, and Paul changes his own name to Paul, from Saul to Paul. Why? Because, I mean, there's not much more Jewish name than Saul, right? So he changes his name to Paul so that his name won't be a barrier in reaching the Greeks and reaching the Gentiles. First thing I want you to know about Paul, 
Jewish Roman citizen, he ends up using his Roman citizenship to get him places the rest of his ministry and mission, okay? Second thing I want you to know about Paul is he was a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees get a bad rap, right? And rightly so, because we're reading it through the lens and light of the Gospels. And so we're like, ah, oh, the Pharisees, right? They're just as bad as the Sadducees, and they're Jesus's enemy, and they're super religious. Here's what I want you to think. When you understand, like, what is a Pharisee? Like, let's teleport, if we could, back to the first century. What is a Pharisee? Here's the best way to think about a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a lawyer in today's terms. That's what he was. Uh, now, lawyers today, it's like, okay, you do constitutional law. Or you do this. They did Torah law. So here's what you need to know about Paul. Paul was wealthy. Pharisees were well-paid. Paul was respected in culture. This is back when, you know, the, the, the idea of being a religious leader was respected. Um, Paul learned under Gamaliel. He tells us that. He learned under, which we know was the best teacher of the day, which means Paul was super smart because lots of Jewish boys wanted to grow up and be Pharisees, but they couldn't because they weren't smart enough. You have to be the best and brightest and another Pharisee has to take you and decide to you know, invest in you. And, and, and you had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Now, some of you, it's okay, have never read the first five books of the Bible. Paul memorized them. And the way they would test you is they would say, you, they would give you a verse and you had to say the verse before it and the verse after it. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. You've never met someone as religious as the Apostle Paul. You've never met somebody, we never will. I don't even know that it's possible in our society today to meet a person as devoted as Paul. Paul was so devoted that he, he goes from, and if you know the story of Acts, you know this, and he tells us about this as well. <clears throat> He's ashamed of this. But Paul goes from being a Pharisee to being a persecutor of the church. So the first time we meet, we meet Saul, uh, before he even becomes Paul, is uh, he's at the stoning of Stephen, approving of it. That Paul ends up chasing down Christians, imprisoning them, and killing them. And then his whole life changes when he meets Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he gets, he's blind for three days, and then scales fall off his eyes, and then people are amazed because the same uh, Jesus, he was persecuting for uh, people about, he begins to proclaim, which is why now he calls himself an apostle. See, an apostle is somebody who has a derivative authority. Paul didn't have any authority in himself. But in verse one, he says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. In other words, he had a unique authority to write scripture and doctrine along with the other apostles, and their writings became the foundation of the church. But he, do you see the end of verse one, or middle of verse one, actually? He says that he, he understands his life, and this is a huge part of identity. I want us to get this. He sees his entire life according to God's will. Now, I, I think I've said this, uh, at least in some of the services at Easter, that the number one question people ask after why is there suffering is what is God's will? That's it. We know that. That's a common question. Many of you have asked that question, but when, here's the problem with all of us. When we ask the question of what is God's will, we're normally thinking small and self-focused. What are you thinking? You're thinking, should I take this job or not? Fair enough. I'm not saying God doesn't care about these things. You're like, uh, should I get married or not? Should I date him or her or not? Should we have kids or not? Should I buy the house or not? Should we move or not? Fair enough. In general, when the Bible talks about God's will, that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about your individual personal will for your life. The will of God is so much bigger than any one of us. The will of God, it's interesting. In other places of the Bible, it's called God's plan. In other places of the Bible, it's called God's purpose. A little bit later in Ephesians, it's called, I love this, God's good pleasure. Let me explain how the will of God works. 
God has two wills. I know this will hurt your head just a little bit, but it's worth, it's worth it, okay? Because um, God's not like us. He's above us. He's different than us, right? God has what's called a will of desire. A will of desire is his revealed will that you can read in the Bible. So uh, it's also, some people call it the will of command. But I, I had a friend and he was deciding, but this is really helpful. He was deciding between two jobs. They were both high level, great jobs. Um, and he said, Kyle, uh, the way I made the decision is I was reading my Bible and I came to the end of 1 Thessalonians and I read that the very end of 1 Thessalonians, it says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. I prayed about it. I realized job A, I could do that better. Wow. I could better obey God's will in job A, so I chose it over job B. Will of desire is very helpful. That's why most of God's will is found in God's word. But God, I told you, has a second will, right? Because you read the Bible and you're like, wait a second, this doesn't all seem to be happening the way that I thought it was gonna happen. That's why you have the Psalms. The Psalms are basically people crying out, going, God, I'm, I'm confused about your will, which is why theologians have understood, and this is what it's talking about, what Paul's talking about. God has a will of decree. It's his secret sovereign will in which he does not play checkers, but he plays chess. And we never fully know how it's all going to work together. We get the end picture in the book of Revelation. But if you ever ask the question, and people ask this question, what is God doing? At one level, we can say, I'm not exactly sure. At another level, we can say, he's accomplishing his will of decree. And here's what happens. This is so helpful. If you, here, here's how we live our lives. And this is how Paul lived his life. You obey the will of desire. You trust the will of decree. And in the midst of it, you discover your personal will of direction. And so here's how the will of God works. And this is so helpful to know. I hope this will be helpful for you. Um, you don't understand God's will looking through the windshield of your life. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you can see far enough, but it's like, wait, what does the Bible say? That his, his word is a lamp to our feet. We see a few steps. <clears throat> what happens is when you look back on your life, in the rear view mirror, you understand God's will. So what Paul's looking back, he says, I am apostle according to the will of God. Here's what Paul's saying. This is why I knew so much Torah. This is why I was a Pharisee, so that I could understand the Bible so well that I could explain it to uh, Jesus from it. He's gonna say, oh, this is why I persecuted the church, because I'm gonna be persecuted the rest of my life, and it's gonna give me a compassion for those who persecute me and a strategy to run away from them, because I know what they're thinking. He's gonna say, this is why you gave me such an intellectual ability because I'm going to write inspired scripture for the church. Can you look back over your life and go, this is why this happened to me, as painful as it was. We tell people here all the time, and I think it's worth saying one more time, your greatest ministry <clears throat> will flow out of your greatest sin you struggled with, your greatest struggle you've gone through, or the greatest suffering you've endured. And, that's, and there's a reason for that. People who struggle want to be ministered to by people who've struggled or suffered in the same way. So what we have here is this whole understanding of Paul. He says, here's who I am. I, I'm a, an apostle according to the will of God. Now, that's what, that's, he spends a lot of time on himself, but he spends even more time on us. So let's continue on. Look at me at what he says about us. Um, he says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ, 
Jesus. So let me, before I even transition and tell you a little bit about who the Ephesians were and what they did, let me just tell you a little bit about Paul's time in Ephesus, okay? So what's interesting, by the way, is when he writes according to the will of God, do you know where he's writing Ephesus from? Prison, right? Paul did prison ministry from the inside, okay? That's what he did. Um, It's very interesting. So the apostle Paul, um, he spent, we estimate, we try to put it all together, right? You try to put acts together with his other letters and you kind of try to put it all together. Uh, We estimate, best guess, Paul spent six to seven years in prison. In fact, the old joke about the apostle Paul was whenever he'd go to a new city, he'd ask where the prison was because he wanted to know where he'd be spending the night, okay? (laughs) And what's amazing about Paul, right? If you look, when he's with the in Philippi, he's in prison with Silas. They sing songs and they end up leading the jailer to Christ. By the way, this is a helpful thing to know about God's will. Just because something's hard or your life isn't going exactly how you want it to doesn't mean you're not in God's will. Paul's in prison and he understands himself in the will of God. Now, he loved the Ephesians. So he'd been to Ephesus twice that we know of, okay? He said, I was there for a really short journey. We don't know how long that was. And then, this is interesting, he spent more time in Ephesus than in any other city on any other missionary journey. His second time in Ephesus, he spends three years there. And in fact, if you read um, Acts chapter 19, we get a detailed account. And in Acts chapter 20, he speaks to the elders. It's really interesting. But here's what Paul did in every city. And this is good to know, okay? Because we've modeled, uh, Christians have modeled their ministry after Paul for a long time. The first thing Paul does when he goes to a city after he checks out the prison, right? Um, Is that the next thing he does, and every time, like there's like, you know, he's, does the exact same thing. He goes first to the synagogues. So he goes to the synagogues because he really believed the gospels to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So he'd go to the synagogue and he'd preach Jesus. And sometimes he'd get stoned and sometimes he'd get beat and sometimes he'd get laughed at and sometimes a few people would believe. And he'd say, okay, come with me. And then he would go over to the marketplace. Like think like he'd go down to the innovation quarter. He'd go to where people are just gathering and he'd preach about Jesus there. That's where all the Greeks and the, and the Gentiles would be. And a few people would believe, but sometimes they wouldn't. And, and then he would gather those people. So the first thing he did, is he would evangelize them. He'd share Christ with them. And a few people would believe and then he would begin to disciple them. This is what he does every place he ever goes. Um, he, he would begin to disciple them for several months. And then this is interesting. There's four things he did. So first he leads them to Christ. Second, he disciples them. The third is very interesting. And, and we get this a detailed account in Acts 14. It says, after Paul discipled people, he would tell them it is through many trials and much tribulation that you will enter the kingdom of God. So Paul has a whole teaching on a whole theology and philosophy of suffering that he would teach people. And then the fourth thing he would do is he would appoint elders. He would appoint local leaders for the local churches and then Paul would leave. Every time that's what he did. Sometimes he was able to come back and visit, other times he was able to write letters. By the way, notice that Paul used the technology and the communication available to him at the time to get the gospel up. This is why we use YouTube. This is why we have a website. This is why we use social media. This is why we send you emails. We have tried to redeem every type of technology we can, except TikTok, okay? We cannot be redeemed. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but I, I love this. Paul, Paul, and Paul, by the way, this is also worth just noting. There's just a lot, by the way, I'm just kind of introducing us to all these themes you're gonna see later in this book. Um, Paul also targeted cities, Okay. Uh, Ephesus would would have been the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time that Paul is writing. Paul only and exclusively went to cities. And the ministry, listen to this, this is really interesting. The ministry to 
the cities, the early Christian mission and ministry to cities was so successful that do you know the word pagan, which we think as a non-believer, do you know who the first people that were called pagans? Rural people. The root word for pagan means I don't live in the city. Now what's happened today is the exact opposite. Christians have lived only in rural areas and in suburbs and they've left the cities. And, and look, Jesus cares about every person in every place, but I want you to know as we're building this building downtown, one of the reasons that we did it is we said, we want to go to the heart of a city. This was what Paul always did because he knew that influence flows down from the city. This is why Paul later in Acts, he could have gone home free and he says, I appeal to Caesar. Why, Paul? Because I need to get to the very heart and center of culture. So that's Paul. Now, Paul tells us who we are. Look at this. Now, let's look at what he says about us. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Here's what he says about us. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So he tells us who we are, right? Do you see three things he's going to tell us? He says, we're saints. I'll talk about that. We're in Ephesus. I'll talk about that. And we're in Christ. All three of those are super important. But before I talk about that, I have to talk a little bit about identity. It's such a huge topic. Like when I preach through books of the Bible, I'm always surprised how much I end up talking about circumcision, right? <laughs> uh, and I'm always surprised how much I talk about suffering. And I'm also surprised how much I end up talking about personal identity. This is so important. Stick with me for a few minutes here because I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the water that we are currently swimming in that we don't even know and, and how we understand identity today. So today you'll hear something like this and, and you may not even know what it means because we didn't used to talk like this, but people will say things like this. You've never heard this. Uh, identity is a social construct. Okay, that's a very common saying. Here's what people mean when they say that, because I didn't know what they meant. I had to read about this and think about this and pray about this and all that. Uh, here's what people mean. Identity is not fixed, it's flexible. Uh, this is what people believe today. And identity has nothing to do with theology, who God says we are, or biology, what our body reveals us to be. But instead, this is so interesting, and if you're interested in reading a book on this, and it's a thick book, but it's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. It's like the smartest person you've ever talked to yelling at you for 400 pages, <laughs> okay? And uh, what he does is he explains over the last 150 years, how did we get to a place where identity has become two things, it's so important. Identity, because this is like, this is why your kids are dealing with what they're dealing with. This is why our culture's confused. Identity has happened, two things have happened to identity. It's become psychologized and sexualized. So there has been an overemphasis on feelings and looking inward. So the book I just told you about, he starts the book and he said, the reason I wrote this book is because I wanted to figure out how we could live in a world where somebody would say, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Or I am a man trapped in a woman's body. Do you understand? Do you hear the feeling language there? I'm, it's like, well, what do you mean by that? What does a woman feel like? What, what does that mean? So what's inside of you is stronger and more powerful and more potent than the biology all around you. Very interesting. So here's why this has happened, because we have so much freedom that we think we have so much flexibility with our identity. Like, like teleport back with me for a moment. Imagine it's the 13th century. And you go and you talk to some 10-year-old 
12-year-old boy in the 13th century. I want you to understand that his identity would have been fixed with no potential for it being flexible. Give you an example. Uh, you talk to the 13-year-old boy and you say, what are you going to do when you get older? That's an identity issue, right? What's his answer? I don't even have to think about it, what my dad does. How much of our identity crisis is, what school am I gonna go to? What am I going to do? Okay, so first question, what are you gonna do? What my dad did. Second question, where will you live? I don't even understand that question. There's nowhere else to live. There's nowhere else to go. This is where my family's always lived. What do you mean? Okay, who will you marry? That's another huge identity crisis for people. I already met her. We met when we were 10. <laughs> There's only 100 people in this town. My parents will help me with it. What will you believe? I don't understand that question. That's my church right there. I was born there. I was baptized there. I'll be buried there. You have to understand that that is much more the human experience for all of human history until very recently where our identity became flexible. Where could I live? Who could I marry? What could I do? And we've gone and looked inside. This is why you're so obsessed with the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs or the disc, okay, we're not against those things, but a lot of that is like, we don't know who we are. Maybe if I take this test, it will help me look inside of me and find out. This is why I remember last week, I talked to, I think I said this in most of the sermons, services. I talked about, um, if you went to your great-grandfather and you said, is your job fulfilling? Remember that? Well, if you really could explain to your grandfather what you meant, your great-grandfather, here's what he would say, I think. He would say, my job is very fulfilling. It allows me to provide shoes for my kids. It allows me to put food on my table. Um, it allows me to pay all of our bills and for us to have a small house. Do you understand? Look, think about this with me for a second. So he's looking outside of himself. We've psychologized our jobs. So if somebody says, what do you like about your job? Is your job fulfilling? I immediately go inward. I'm like, oh yeah, I love it. I love when I'm unpacking some truth for the first time and I'm watching other people get it. It's like, okay, we've psychologized and gone internal. Here's the second thing. So there's two places people wrongly find too much of their identity. One is in their feelings, two is in their suffering. Okay, so let me give you another big word, intersectionality. If you've never heard of that word, you've experienced it. Here's what it is. It's we break up the world into race, class, sex, and disability. It's an over, this is how you know you're an ideology. You're in an ideology if it's too simple. It's too simple. But this is what people do. They break it up. And then they think the more oppressed identities they have, the better. And the louder their voice should be. Let me show you how this works. All right, a man shouldn't be speaking here. I, a woman, I'm a woman, I'll speak. And then another woman goes, you're a woman? I'm a black woman. Don't speak, for, I'll speak, I got a unique. Okay, you're a black woman? I'm a black gay woman. Oh, you're a black gay woman, hold on. I'm a black gay woman with a disabled son. Oh, you're a black gay woman with this. Hold on, I'm a black gay woman with a disabled son and an alcoholic father. Don't make your issues your identity. 
do not play the game who has suffered the most. No one who's playing that game is happy. Have you ever met someone who's playing that game who's happy? Have you ever met a happy feminist? <laughs> exactly. <sighs> Paul gives us something better. He gives us something better. He tells us we're three things. Let's talk about them. First, he says you're a saint, okay? Now, I've got to go back to my Catholic roots. I'm, you know, grew up Catholic. And so if you're Catholic, if you grew up Catholic, you think of saints as an elite spiritual class. Like I read what you have to do to be a saint. First of all, uh, you have to live an extraordinary life. So we're all out of it, okay? <laughs> you gotta live an extraordinary life. The second thing you have to do is you have to do a miracle during your life. The third thing you have to do is die, <laughs> okay? The fourth thing you have to do is a group of people have to vote on if you were really a saint. And then you become canonized and then they put you over a certain area and then other Catholics can pray to you, okay? That's the Catholic view of being a saint. A Christian is a saint. It's actually Paul's favorite description for the Christian. He uses it nine times in Ephesians alone. But a saint has two components. Saint means set apart and holy. Set apart, it means consecrated, dedicated, devoted. Um, but it also means to take on the character of God, to become, that's what I said earlier, to become who God says you already are. So he tells them they're a saint, but then he tells them two other interesting things that are worth our attention and thought. He says, you're in Ephesus and you're in Christ. Do you see those two identities? It's a physical identity and a spiritual identity. It's an identity in earth and an identity in heaven. It's a temporary identity and a permanent identity. So in Ephesus are all of our secondary identities, and you have several of them. Your secondary identities are usually connected to people and places, and they change across time. Uh, but but the, the main thing is you don't look inside. The Bible teaches us we don't look inside to find our identity. We look outside of us, and we look to relationships to find our identity. This is why for most people, like most dudes, guys, okay, you're going to have basically five identities in your life. You're gonna be dad, husband, son, brother, some type of employee. That's about it. You don't need more identities than that. In women, it's gonna be basically the same thing on the other side. It's gonna be wife, mother, sister, daughter, employer, or employee. That's it. And that's enough identities. And, that's, and, and, and you find a lot of your identity. So here's how you know this is important. Have you, what's the hard thing about being an orphan? Think about an orphan for a moment. You know, it's very hard. If you get into the foster care, and some of you aren't, thank God for that, the foster care and adoption process, you're gonna see the, the heartbreak of a lot of it. What, what, what's hard about orphans is they have no identity because they have no consistent relationship. Because what, until you're like 10, your identity is son and sibling. And that's enough when you're 10 years old. I'm a son and I'm a sibling, or I'm a daughter and I'm a sibling, and that's it. When you're an orphan, you don't have those identities. And people often spend the rest of their lives in brokenness trying to figure that out. But here's the thing about your secondary identities. You don't wanna to put too much weight in them because they, most of them don't last across time, right? The most unhappy person is who puts way too much identity in being a college student and then they have to graduate, right? Like the guy who's going back and still wearing his varsity jacket to the high school games, though he's 25. <laughs> stay, stay away from him, right? Um, 
We don't, we, we, I, we have to embrace the temporary nature of our identities. Like, I, I mean, this is not a trick question, but I had this thought this week. I'm like, okay, so most of us, our parents are going to die before us. So if your parents die, both of your parents, and this has happened to some of you, if both of your parents die, are you still a son? It certainly changes the experience of it. If your spouse dies, you're no longer a husband or a wife. All right, you know, most of us are going to move something like six to eight times in our lives. We don't want to get too connected to certain, any one identity. This is why the second identity of being in Christ, you see that that's Paul's favorite phrase ever, ever. There's no phrase, this is, so this is why it's important. We're gonna unpack it more in weeks to come. There's no phrase more important to the Apostle Paul than those two words. I know we pass them over and they're everywhere, but listen, in Christ shows up 27 times just in Ephesians. It's, it's the experience of the believer that what faith does, okay, faith in a mysterious way unites you to Jesus Christ. It, you, it, you, that's, what the, that's what all the great reformers talked about. They said, faith is that which unites you to Christ. So somehow the Bible actually says, we're hidden with Christ in God and sealed by the Holy Spirit, which means if Satan wants to come after us, he has to go through all three members of the Trinity to get to us, okay? You are very, very secure. But here's how, the, here's how your identity should work. You take your in Christ identity and you put it as the first word before all of your secondary identities. This is so basic. You are a Christian mom. That will help direct and influence and inform what it means to be a mom. This may sound silly to some of you, but I have to remind myself I'm a Christian pastor. I'm a Christian even before I'm a pastor. I'm not just somebody who studies the Bible to teach other people uh, what it says. I am first and foremost a Christian. You're a Christian brother. You're a Christian teacher. When you become a Christian, being a Christian becomes the most important thing about you. That's how you know you've become a Christian. If being a Christian is like a secondary identity in your life, then I don't know if you've really become a Christian. When you become a Christian, you're, you're in Christ. That's what, here's the theological term. It's called union with Christ. And union with Christ is the precursor for communion with Christ. And Paul's gonna give us this in Ephesians 5, but the picture of this on earth is marriage. Two people become one. And when someone gets married, they have union, but then they have to decide across time to have communion. How many people have you met that they have union, but no communion? This is also the temptation of Christians across time, which is why Paul ends, look at verse two, Paul ends, telling us what our lives should be about. Here's what he says. Grace to you and peace from God the Father, God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I told you earlier who Paul is. It's worth saying one more time. Can you believe Paul the persecutor and Paul the Pharisee is now been transformed to Paul the guy who talks about grace and peace? Paul's life was the, and I think he knew this, Paul's life was the exact opposite of grace and peace before he met Jesus. His life was all about law. It was about, before you're a Christian, this is where some of you are, before you're a Christian, your life is all about your accomplishments or your religious activity. And before you come to Christ, that's where you find your identity. Paul found his identity 
and being a Pharisee of Pharisees. Read, read Philippians 3. He goes, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He even boasted of things we would never boast about. He goes, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Paul boasted in his religious activity and in his accomplishments before he understood now grace. And then what was Paul's whole life about right before he met Jesus? Bringing terror, violence, and destruction to people, which is the exact opposite of what Paul's now about. Paul's about bringing peace, but it's hard to understand grace and peace, right? We say those words. This is why Jesus, if you ever wonder, why did Jesus teach um, in parables? Because it's kind of interesting. Like, why did he tell so many stories? Because it's not easy to explain hope. It's not easy to give a definition for love. It's not easy to articulate a definition for grace and peace. And so Jesus told us stories. Now, the best definition I have heard for grace is a one-way love. It's a love coming to you that has nothing to do with you. It's God loving the unlovable. But I think for me recently, one of the most powerful, and I'd seen it before, but one of the most powerful stories that expresses the grace of God is Les Mis. I don't know if any of you got to see it. It was a tanger a couple weeks ago, and I went with my wife and some friends. And there's Jean Valjean, okay? Just follow me. This is, this is important to understand the grace of God. Jean Valjean, he, he gets out of prison, and uh, he's angry, and he's bitter, and he's resentful, and all of that. And he can't find anywhere to live because when you get out of prison, he was poor. And so this priest invites him into the house. And the priest sings him a song, which I will not sing you, okay? Um, and he basically says, we don't have much, but what we have is yours. And he puts him, he says, you know, good night. And we'll see you in the morning. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean gets up and he steals from this priest. He steals the candles and he steals anything of value. And he heads out in the middle of the night. This is the first, like one of the first scenes in the whole story. And the police grab him. And you're watching and you go, this is the end, dude. He's going to go back to another 20 years in prison. And the police bring him back to the priest's house. And they say, this man stole your candles and your silver. And he said, you gave it to him. And in this powerful moment, the priest said, I did. He said, but you forgot more things. And he goes back and he gets more silver. And he gives the man who stole from him even more. And you can see the effect it has on Jean Valjean. And he sings him another song, which I also won't sing you, okay? <laughs> and he says, use this to be a better man. And the next scene is 15 years later and his whole life has been transformed by an act of grace. We need stories, we need stories where we, of our own lives and others where we see the grace of God. Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. He gives no definition of grace in the whole book. It's a whole book of stories about the grace of God. Second, we don't understand peace. We live in a society that wants peace but doesn't understand grace. The only way you get peace is by the grace of God. What is peace? At the deepest level, here's the definition of peace. It's rest for your soul. And the way you find rest for your soul is you realize, oh my goodness, Jesus Christ has dealt with my sin at the cross. And therefore, I have peace because I no longer have guilt. But secondly, you can have peace when you're no longer trying to achieve an identity but you can receive an identity from Christ. How much of our lives is some rat race 
in some compare, compete, conquer with other coworkers or classmates or family members. And there is no peace because we're all striving for some identity. Well, where does peace and grace come from? Grace is given and peace is purchased by Christ. This is why he says there's grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. As we start to embark on this four-month journey through Ephesians, I ask you, let's close by dreaming together the dream of Ephesians. What would it look like for you to be so secure in your identity in Christ? Where you say, I'm a Christian brother, I'm a Christian sister, I'm a Christian mom, I'm a Christian dad, I'm a Christian teacher, I'm a Christian banker. And you could be so secure in that identity that you could actually be a peacemaker to other people. See, the reason that we can't love people and serve people is often we need something from them. I need you to see me as something. I need you to give me some identity. I need you to know who I am. And instead we can say, I actually know who I am and I know whose I am. And how amazing would it be if our identity was fully in Christ? And secondly, how incredible would it be if our homes and this church and many other places were places of grace and peace? A place of grace and peace is a place where sin can be confessed. In fact, we're not shocked by sin. A place of grace and peace is where people get to start over and they get second chances. It's a place where your life can fall apart and be put back together. It's a place where we're not surprised when people sin. It's a place where we're quick to confess our own sins. What would it look like if we went out from here today and we were secure in who we were in Christ and we were committed to making every environment we head into a place of grace and peace because we've received grace and peace vertically, we can give it to others horizontally. Let's pray that together. Lord, that is our prayer. Would you make us so secure in who we are? Paul, in his first opening sentence, can't but talk about how he belongs to the Lord Jesus. And Paul understood his whole life and his whole ministry in terms of his relationship with you, Lord Jesus. Would you do that for us? Would you make us so secure, Lord? We pray for particularly our, our, our young teenagers, our middle schoolers, our high schools, our college students who are being bombarded daily, being told who they are, being lied to. Would you give us a confidence, Lord? Would you let us live in both spheres, Lord? We live in an earthly sphere and a heavenly sphere at the same time. We both have an earthly address and a heavenly address. Would you help our heavenly identity of being in Christ to empower and influence our everyday earthly identities. We pray this in Jesus' name.